Church History Matters, Episode 28. Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. Welcome back to another episode of Church History Matters. My name is Joseph Knowles. My name is Ruben Rosales. All right, and we have been a little bit of a hiatus, and then we had a little bit of a false start or two with yeah. our recording schedule, yeah. but we're we're back and uh, hopefully have a, a timely topic for you um, that we'll jump into in just a minute. Which was probably due to our lack of preparedness in deciding another topic. So. Yes. So, so our next two topics have kind of been decided for us. Providentially, right. So that's pretty good. Yes. So hopefully we'll we'll get the get the recording schedule down a little bit more. Yeah. So we are both. Well, before I'll, I'll, we'll mention this one, but I think it's relevant to yeah. the, today's discussion. But before we get into that, what? This week in church. Oh history. yes, I do have this week in church history. <laughs> let's discuss or uh, let's hear it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, this one actually for us and for our Virginia listeners, which is a lot of you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah this yeah. is a little bit of local history. Sweet. Uh, so we go back to 1855 and I did not know this until I researched it that in 1855 there was an outbreak of yellow fever here in, in Portsmouth and Norfolk. Hold on. When you say yellow fever, <laughs> what do you mean? Is that was that the actual name of it? Or yes, that like... yellow fever. Oh, okay. That, was the, that okay. was the name of it. Yes. I wasn't sure if you were using yellow in a pejorative. No, way. no, 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 absolutely not. Let me make sure. Yeah, yellow Let me fever. Issue a warning to our listeners before you <laughs> use language warning, like that. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, it's known as the still known as the yellow fever. It's still okay. around, um, but there was a a pretty bad outbreak in the summer of 1855. It's carried by mosquitoes. Gross. And basically, only affects uh, humans. Uh, primates and mosquitoes, but at the time it was you know it was one of those things where they didn't have a lot of good treatments, so they had a really bad outbreak in the summer of 1855. And as it happened, a lot of the um, Christian preachers in the area in Portsmouth either left to get away from it or themselves succumbed to the fever. Wow! But there was one man, a minister in the Episcopal Church. Um, who was at the time the rector of St. John's Episcopal Church in Portsmouth. Wow. Who stayed behind. And he kind of became the de facto pastor pastor to all of the Protestant wow. Christians in the entire city. So he was there um, in 1855. He had actually sent one of his sons away for an unrelated illness. So he's there with his one young son, his wife having passed away a few years before. Oh, man. And he is kind of there saying, this is my duty. Who is going mm. to minister to these people if I don't stay, even though it may be at the cost of my own health? Right. Um, so as these things go, they tend to subside as the mosquitoes die down. Right. But not before. Unfortunately, uh, the Reverend James Chisholm himself contracted yellow fever, probably due in part to his just being weakened from all the work that he was taking on. Yeah. And uh, he passed away on September 15th, 1855, about 15 days before his 40th birthday. Oh, my goodness. So he was young. Yeah, he was a young guy. Um, oh. But faithful to his calling, remaining there in Portsmouth, treated at, at the Portsmouth Naval Hospital, actually. No way. Yeah. 
and wow. uh, is buried in, I think, the um, the Cedar Grove Cemetery in Portsmouth. So all these things, wow. if you're here in Virginia, or especially if you're in the Tidewater area, you can go and check this out. That the church is, is really there, cool. the cemetery is there. Yeah, I know the church is there. I definitely yeah. you know passed by it several times. Yeah. But I do want to point out that in that time period, they weren't really great. They were giving mercury to people. They were still slapping right, mercury yeah, yeah, yeah. on wounds yeah. and all kinds of other crazy mm-hmm. stuff. So they didn't really have a lot of... I mean, it's it's interesting to think what in 100 years to, from now, should the Lord not return? Like, what things will they be looking back? I have a yeah. few ideas of what they'll be looking at and yeah, yeah. laughing at. Like, it makes me think of um, if you if we got any Trekkies, Trekkies in the audience. Uh, um they always kind of remark on that in some of... I, I know they do in the original series where uh, uh, Jim McCoy will say, this is this is barbaric, like what they used to do back to, in the 21st century. And like, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, but it's interesting to think about. Anyway, uh, that's James Chisholm passed away September 15th, 1855, 166 years ago. Wow. Probably the day we released this episode. You say... Did you say, say the last name again? Chisholm. Okay. So, but to look at it, it would like Chisholm. Okay. It sounded like you said Chisholm whenever you pronounced it. I was like... Mm, Maybe I did. I don't think it's pronounced that way. <laughs> yeah, like the Chisholm Trail. Yes, Chisholm, yeah. Yeah. All right. That is you know, This Week in Church History. remember the name Chisholm from uh, Young Guns 2. Young Guns 2. <laughs> <laughs> that, was the name, that was the name of one of... It was, it was a guy who was hiring uh, the regulators to do all these other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he ended up... Res- or, Maybe they were the ones that were confronting Mr. Chisholm because he was buying up farms and stuff. And That's right, yeah. yes. Chis- took a lot of farms, Mr. Chisholm. Yes. Yeah. Chisholm is actually, uh, that's a John Wayne movie. Is it really? Also, yes. I About the that. same thing, the range war that happened ah, at the same time. Ah, there you go. I don't well, think that is anything. American history for you there. No church history, <laughs> no but church a little history bit of history. No church history in that history. one, yeah. Okay. Oh, but, so what I was going to point to is the fact that the reason, well, at least for me, it's been a little hectic, and we haven't got an episode out. Is because we've been getting ready for school starting. Yes, and you are now once again, yes, homeschooling we family. We are re homeschoolers by the grace of God. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah, so we are starting a. We have just started a different co op that we have never done before, mm-hmm. and it has a lot to do with uh, a lot of homeschoolers are familiar with CC um, classical conversations, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of modeled after that but with a much more um i don't want to say uh, a leaner offering of of things and it's just it's just different it's a different mm-hmm. pace we've never done anything like it before so uh it was a growing it was a growing yeah season for us takes an adjustment yeah yeah so on to today's topic which that relates to today's topic it it does and uh because yeah well, what we're going to be talking about is, um, well, a doctrine or not a doctrine. Well, I guess the doctrine was kind of founded in right. that time period, yeah. 1500s, um, with the issuance of a confession, mm-hmm. the Magdeburg Confession. Right. And uh, what was this? What was the? What was the doctrine, or what was the doctrine presented, and uh, who were the ones? Who were the framers of it? Yeah. So this is we're talking about. The do- what's known as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, um, and I don't know if they specifically called it that, but that's what it kind of what it's come to be known yeah. as. And well, it's interesting because like there's that there's that doctrine, but then there's also this idea, and I can't remember who somebody later on after Martin Luther came out with this idea. It was called the Reformed doctrine of I can't remember if it was tyrannical 
uh, obedience or disobedience. I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was. But yeah, uh, what is a lesser magistrate? What does that mean? Right. So that's the basically the idea that there's at the time you had like you had the emperor, and then you'd have kings or dukes or various um, lesser monarchs, and then down below that you might have the, the town council, the governor, the town council. And that sort of thing. But also, it's talking about levels of authority, basically. Right. Um, and, I mean, before we do get any farther, I, I, just a little caveat. Recording this in, in 2021, yeah. after the 2020 that we had, and how... We're huddled in a bunker. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not quite. Send help. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we realized this is a... It's a timely topic, but it's also a sensitive topic. So we're presenting you historical information, and we'll give our thoughts on that. Uh, but this is something that, you know, it, it, there's another podcast where they're very fond of saying, like, this is not a church and we're not your pastors. And we remind you that from, from time to time. So Absolutely. we'll present you the information, and uh, we're glad to have a discussion Encour- about yeah, it. I encourage you to do your own study and ask your pastor. Absolutely. Ask your pastor and your elders. Um, these are conversations that probably should be had, especially considering the past uh, 20 months. Right. Yeah. So what we want to do is just give an idea of starting with the Magdeburg Confession. How have some Christians thought about this doctrine of the lesser magistrate um, throughout history? So do you remember how um, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens starts? A Christmas Carol? No. No, <laughs> I don't. I, I think... Uh, I I don't even remember how Scrooge started. That was a yeah. movie, so yeah, you know, yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, the first sentence is Marley was dead. Oh, so this story kind of starts the same way. Martin was dead. Nice. Uh, Martin Luther was dead. So he died in 1546. Uh, the same year that that happened. Coincidentally, I don't know. Providentially, there are no coincidences, right? See, and this is uh, time out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to digress a little here, so forgive me, listeners. But this kind of thing, I mean, you're thinking about this, right? If we were going to, uh, 50 years, 100 years from now, when they look back at this moment, they're going to think R.C. Sproul died. <laughs> Let's see what happened after that. Right. Yeah. And, um, that's very, very possibly. Yeah. Yes. So anyhow, go ahead. Sure. Uh, we're starting in 1546. Charles V, who at the time was both the King of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor and the guy before whom Luther had to appear at the Diet of Worms, um, went to war with a number of German states that had formed the Schmalkaldic League. Um, yeah. So he go these, these, these states had formed the Schmalkaldic League, which was basically... Uh, states that got together and say, we're going to actually grant religious liberty to Lutherans to practice their religion freely within our states. Um, so Charles goes to war with these states. Uh, spoiler alert, he wins a couple of years later. Now, the purpose of the war was because they were granting religious freedom. That's what it boiled down to, yeah. Okay. And it was also because at that point, if Charles the emperor says, no, we're Catholic, and these guys say... Well, in our dukedom, we're going to allow the Lutherans to practice their religion. That's an affront to his authority at the same time. Right. Sort of like what we've got going on in Texas right now. Maybe so. <laughs> or as perceived by those that are right. in the higher levels of government. Yeah. So the Schmalkaldic League loses the war. Um, Charles issues what was known, what 
became known as the Augsburg Interim. So mm. Augsburg for the city, interim because it was meant as a temporary measure until the Council of Trent finishes as up. As all things are for right. governments, right? All temporary Just government. temporary, guys. <laughs> Stop so, resisting. <laughs> so under this, the Lutherans um, were required to restore the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Recalling from previous episodes, Catholics had seven. The Lutherans would rec- recognize... Only two. The same biblical, two that we do. biblical Christians. Right. I've recognized two. Yes. Exactly. Um, and they were also required to um, restore the doctrine of transubstantiation. Ooh, that's so. The doctrine of transubstantiation, for those that are not aware and do not remember, uh, is the doctrine held by the Roman Catholic Church, which teaches that during the Holy Eucharist, which is the Mass, uh, the height of it comes when the bread and the wine are offered up as a sacrifice. Uh, to God, um, a re-sacrificing of the body and the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. They say and they hold that the bread remains and retains the appearance of bread, but is uh, transubstantially <laughs> uh, the Lord's body. That it truly is the body of Christ. And of course, they look at verses from Matthew and Luke where, said, where Jesus says, this is my body. They say, oh, it says he, it is his body. Mm-hmm. And so they believe that and hold to that. Um, and so that's that's what that doctrine says. Now, the Lutheran doctrine of that was consubstantiation, mm-hmm. which said that the bread remained or looked um, and stayed bread, but that the body of the literal body of Christ was there also present with right. con, thus consubstantiating. Mm-hmm. It was there right. with the bread and the wine. Um, is means is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but again, if you look at, especially in Luke, it says he says, "This is the cup, right, of my blood." Mm-hmm. So they would have to hold that. Oh, the cup is a part of that also. It's right. not just, yeah. um, but we digress. Yes. So anyhow, so that was the doctrine that was uh, loathsome to Lutherans. Right. And rightly so. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, what Charles was demanding as part of the Augsburg interim. And it's worth noting that this actually was an attempt at compromise. So he, he wasn't quite going in and saying, nope, we're back to the way things were. Uh, before 1517 or whatever, you know, he would have wound the clock back to. Um, so I say, I'll work with you, but you got to do yeah. this stuff. Now, that is a, um, so that's an interesting thing, right? Because this is actually what's at stake here is, is conscience. Mm-hmm. This is, this is a matter of conscience that right. they're, they're trying to bind the conscience of other believers, Lutherans, mm-hmm. to hold to something and to confess to something that they believe is unbiblical and antithetical to Christ. Right. Which I would agree with. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's, um, there was a city of Magdeburg, which would be in modern-day central eastern Germany, um, and nine pastors um, decided that their consciences required them to refuse to abide by the emperor's decree. Um, chapter 5. Yes. So they put their rationale for doing so and for refusing to obey him in writing. Now, the long title, the full title, is The Confession, Instruction, and Admonition of the Pastors and Preachers of the Christian Congregations of Magdeburg. Mm. We'll refer to that as the Magdeburg Confession. 
Um, and it's kind of as as far as a detailed statement of this doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It's kind of the the first thing. So um, for a long time, it was not available in English. It had not been had not been translated. So you had to go to the German or the Latin. Um, but it now has been translated, and we'll link you in the show notes page um, to where you can see some excerpts from that. But the work of uh, translating and publishing it has been done by Pastor Matthew Trujella, Dr. Matthew Colvin, and the Reverend George Grant. Is it Trujella? I always keep. I always want to call it Trujella, but it's definitely, oh, yeah, definitely there's, Trujella. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he has a book. Right. Is it just the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate? I can't remember. Just the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. Very small book, Mm -hmm. about 50 pages maybe, if that. Very simple read. Uh, I like it. I I recommend Mm -hmm. it. It's, you know, gave it three stars. Yeah. On Goodreads. Yes. So we'll we'll give you some of the excerpts here. Um, But then if you want the full thing, you can go and get it from Pastor Trujillo's website. I think he's got it available there. And one of the things that they say at the outset is is this when when magistrates or parents themselves lead their charges away from true piety and uprightness obedience is not owed to them from the word of god also when they professedly persecute piety and uprightness they remove themselves from the honor of magistrate and parents before god and their own consciences and instead of being an ordinance of god they become an ordinance of the devil which can and ought to be resisted by his order capital H, his order, for the sake of one's calling. Mm. So right there at the outset, they're kind of laying the groundwork, saying, here's what Charles is doing. Yeah, He is he is persecuting piety and uprightness because he's forcing us to adopt these doctrines, reinstitute these doctrines that yeah. we know to be false. Yeah, so there's, it's the, uh, the, the, the thing I was talking about, the idea, the doctrine of reformed uh, sphere of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. That there are three spheres uh, God has given for authority and sovereignty. The first being um, the family, the mm-hmm. church, and then the civil government. Right. Instituted in Genesis chapter 9. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that each of those spheres have authority within that sphere. And right. it's not ever okay for them to usurp the authority of another sphere. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the the government has a tool for exercising their authority, mm-hmm. which is to be a terror to good, to evil. Right. And not to good works. Right. So they have the sword mm-hmm. and they're to bear the sword against evil. So whether through war or through capital punishment, they exercise their sphere of sovereignty in being a servant of God for good. And, but if we, if you or I were to go out and say, Hey, this person did this crime, they are guilty. I'm going to go kill them because they're guilty. Right. That's no, I don't have the sword. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I actually am as a Christian called to not take vengeance right. into my own hands and to let, you know, the serious sovereignty that God has given for that to take care of that. Yeah. And they, I mean, in writing out, they directly address exactly what you're saying. They don't call it sphere sovereignty. That's yeah. kind of the term we've adopted. Yeah. Uh, but they go on to say, we command them being church members. Yeah. By the word of Christ, to render unto God the things that are God's, and to Caesar, though he be different in religion, the things that are Caesar's. Mm. And then they address Charles V directly. They say, you, Charles Caesar, are exceeding the limits of your dominion, 
and you are and you are extending it mm. into the dominion of Christ. Exactly, which so would the, be the realm of the church. He's right. usurping the authority that was not given him by God, and so therefore, now this is a distinction that Dr. Sam Waldron made that I don't think is, I don't think I would agree with, mm-hmm. but nonetheless should be said. He would say that you may resist, mm-hmm. but you are not required. Right. To resist. I would say, no, I think you're required to resist. Right. That. Because to not re- resist, that would be evil. Yeah. And to permit evil. That, and that, that's another good uh, sermon series that we can link at the show notes page where uh, Sam Waldron, who is at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. But so someone was asking recently, how come Baptists don't do systematic theologies? Mm-hmm. And I think I think he, if anybody came close to doing one, it was Sam Waldron when he did the exposi- exposition oh, right. of the 1689, because the 1689 is itself systematic. Right. So there is a systematic theology there presented in his exposition mm-hmm. of the 1689. Yeah. So also would highly recommend that book. Right. Yeah. Um, and they they do. I mean, they get into that same issue you talk about may or must resist. Right. They break it down actually into four different levels of tyranny. Okay. What they call levels of tyranny. So at the first and the second levels, they urge that the lesser magistrates, again, that being the lowest level of right, the authority. mayor or the pastor or that. I mean, they mentioned parents there. So yeah. they view parents, um, husbands and fathers specifically as on that ladder of the lesser yeah. magistrates. Like they have authority within the family and ultimately their view of the state says that's where you start from. You, right. you start from the family and you build Absolutely. outward. Because that's the smallest local government. Right. right? So they say um, the uh, first and second levels of tyranny, they urge the lesser magistrate to tolerate the injuries caused by the superior magistrates. Um, so, And they give examples of those kind of things. At the third level... That's where they put situations where an inferior magistrate is so forced to certain sin. And they hold up the example of the Hebrew Mm, midwives in Exodus. You must not participate in sin. Um, And then they go into a little bit more, I'll read a little bit more on the fourth level of tyranny. Um, They say the fourth and highest level of injury by superiors is more than tyrannical. It is when tyrants begin to be so mad that they persecute with guile and arms, not so much the just persons of inferior magistrates and their subjects as the right itself, especially the right of anyone of the highest and most necessary rank, and that they persecute God, the author of right in persons, not by any sudden or momentary fury, but with deliberate and persistent attempt to destroy good works for the posterity. Hmm. So right there they're saying... Rights don't come from government. That's right. They don't come from the state. Rights come from God. So when you're attacking these rights, you're not attack. You're not just attacking these things that are made up, pulled out of thin air. You're attacking God-given rights that He has given to people. Right. You're you're you are in effect. Now this may be a reach for some, but I like to be a little bombastic from <laughs> time to time. Uh, you are in effect placing yourself as God. Absolutely. Because you are saying mm-hmm. uh, what God has said is not good enough. Right. My way mm-hmm. should be followed. And it goes back again, Mac, uh, Acts chapter 5, right? We, we must obey God rather than men. And mm-hmm. so yeah. this is crazy. Now, um, continuing on there, listen to some of the, they'll give some of the examples of the kind of things they're talking about. Therefore, if now the leader or Caesar proceeds to such a height of insanity, only that only in that order of natural knowledge, which governs the society of civil life and uprightness, 
that he abolishes the law concerning marriages Ooh. and all chastity, Ooh. and himself sets up a contrary law of roving unclean lusts to the effect that the wives and daughters of all men are to be prostituted. Yikes. And if he himself defends and prosecutes this law with force of arms, so that certain death is laid down as the penalty of those who resist or fail to conform, in such a case, doubtless no clear-thinking person would have any hesitation about the divine right and commandment that such a leader or monarch ought to be curbed by everyone in his most wicked attempt, even by the lowest magistrates with whatever power they have. Mm. That, to me... Uh, kind of hit like a tongue and br- ton of bricks, given the the world that we live in, about the magistrate abolishing the laws of marriage. Now they haven't in the United States. We haven't abolished marriage, but it's been so perverted by the civil authorities and what they consider to be a marriage. Could we almost? I mean, it's it's not totally dissimilar from the kind of thing no, that they're yeah. talking about. And well, the part that really. Uh... <clears throat> To the effect, or, or and himself sets up a contrary law of roving, unclean lusts. Mm-hmm. That is, those lusts that are unnatural, always wrong, and, and disordered. And those that are perhaps rightly natural, but also disordered mm-hmm. and perverted. Right. Um, which I think is the case today. Yeah. I mean, like, if, if not government promoted or, or mandated or given by law, but definitely permitted and not made no laws I against think, it. I think you can say promoted. <laughs> Yeah, when, definitely permitted. When we, uh, when at we, there is no we here. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, but you've got the State Department at the embassy in Kabul, wasn't it? Flying the pride flag in June. So I, I think you can definitely say there, there's cases where it's been promoted. Yeah. But yeah. that's the fourth level of tyranny. So we leave it to your own judgment of <laughs> how close to that uh, we might be in the United States or for our listeners across the globe. You're probably in some cases, much closer to it than, than we are. Um, so if we, I don't think we said before, but this confession was written and published in the spring of 1550. After Luther died. Right, after Luther died, after Schmalkaldic War. Um, they issued this confession, and Charles V sends an army and lays siege to the whole city. And that siege would pr- go from the spring of 1550 until November 1551, when, when finally Charles's forces... Uh, were forced to give up mm. in defeat. So um, cities at that time were set up to resist a siege, and that was kind of part of their strategy of warfare. But the city of Magdeburg wins, um, and it would be a few years later in 1555 that Catholic and Protestant rulers agreed to the Peace of Augsburg, and that in general terms made the legalization of Protestantism more permanent, mm. at least for Lutherans. Right. Calvinists, <laughs> sorry, not yet. Yeah. Um, but... There would be Lutheranism and there would be Catholicism, and it would basically depend on whose uh, whose kingdom did you live in at the time. Like they got to choose; they didn't have to answer to Charles V as to what religion was going to prevail in their country. Now it's still right. a long way to go. The kind so, of religious liberty that we think of, but yeah, it was a but step. But as that we direction. can see, theonomy failed <laughs> again. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> tweaking kidding. some people. Yeah. Um, so that's. I mean, that's kind of the. Maybe not the genesis, but the crystallization of this as a doctrine. But you see it proceed from there over the ensuing years up to the present day, I think. Well, and here's the other thing is we are, uh, you know, confessional 1689 Baptists. We both hold that the law of of God, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments are abiding for Christians today. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think if you if you look at any sphere of authority, you have to look at the fifth commandment, mm-hmm. which is where that all stems from, right? You right. are you are to honor your parents, mm-hmm. right? So I think I think Truhala goes in, Truhella. Sorry, <laughs> Mister Pastor Matt guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, he talks about this in his book that when he talks about may versus must mm-hmm. as far as the lesser magistrate uh, interposing mm-hmm. on behalf of the constituents, right? So if you're the father of a household and you are the spiritual head and leader and uh, of that family, if you were to command your wife to do something to your children, uh, perhaps beat them or, or to treat them harshly, uh, to do something that would be obviously sin, right. it's her right. She must not commit it, but she also must resist it. Mm-hmm. And do whatever she can to resist it. Right. But if then you come home or, or, you know, the father comes home and says, you know what, I'm going to do it. She now has a duty as the legis- lesser magistrate to defend to the best of her ability her children from the sins mm-hmm. of, or that the father's trying to commit. Right. So this is this is basically the doctrine of lesser magistrates is that reality within the household, which is the lowest form of government, carried out into the next sphere, which would be the civil realm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess kind of for the second half, what we'll do is having given you, the, given you at least an overview of the Magdeburg Confession, um, kind of run through the next 300 years of <laughs> church history and just hit some highlights of some yeah. other men who had written on the same topic. Basically, why is it that this moment in time is important and why it's relevant to today and obviously why church history matters? Yeah, there you go. So first guy we'll talk about is uh, Heinrich Bullinger. Heinrich. Heinrich Bullinger. Uh, his dates are 1504 to 1575. He was born in Switzerland near Zurich um, and eventually would become the successor to Ulrich Zwingli as the leader of the Reformed Church there. Um, he was elected as was Zwingli's successor. An no, they Good. did not like the Anabaptists in, in Zurich. They, yeah. they kicked him out pretty harshly, too. <laughs> um, he's elected Zwingli's successor by the city council unanimously. Nice. At the age of 27, which is pretty incredible. It is. Yeah. Now, in the words of Stephen Lawson, Bullinger is regarded as the most influential second generation reformer. And this blew my mind. Wow. He wrote more than Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli combined. The guy he wrote Institutes. Yes. More than that guy. Yes. And also Luther. And Luther. And and Zwingli. Yep. All of them put together. Wow. Yeah. One of his most influential books is known as The Decades, and it's effectively a collection of sermons that also function, kind of function as like a systematic theology. Mm. Um, it was originally published in four volumes from 1549 to 1552, so contemporaneously with the at the same time as the conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants in Germany that we were just talking about. Mm. Um, so now we talked about the Fifth Commandment. Yep. In his sermon on the Sixth Commandment and on the magistrates, um, he wrote this. Hold on a second. So we got to discuss this because when he says sixth commandment, are you sure that this is not the, actually the fifth commandment because oh. the way the Roman Catholics numbered them differently? And there's still ten commandments. Yes. It's just that in the Roman Catholic uh, teaching, they basically uh, make the first two commandments one commandment, and the last two, the last commandment, they split it up into two commandments. Right. And I actually I, I stumbled upon that. I, I had not, that had never occurred to me until I got to law school. And uh, at, at Regent University, they have a time for a devotional at the beginning of class. And my contracts professor, my first year Catholic. was 
No, he's a Messianic oh. Jew. Oh, okay. I, I did have some Catholic professors, but I also had one who was a, a Messianic Jew who went to University of Texas Law School. Nice. And <laughs> he was a character. Um, but he said he actually did a whole devotional, I think, on that, how the first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. Mm. And then they break there. Oh. In that tradition. So they have a slightly different numbering system. Interesting. I'm pretty sure this is definitely the sixth Bullinger is, is writing on what we would call the sixth commandment, Murder. thou shalt not kill. Well, well, that's not murder. I mean, I'm going with the original King yeah, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a friend, friend that, for, that was visiting the church uh, this past Lord's Day. He said, uh, well, I use the words that Jesus used. <laughs> like, okay, buddy. <laughs> oh, Obviously, boy. he means the King's English. Yes. Jesus clearly did not speak. <laughs> no. No, he did not speak Elizabethan English. Um, anyway, back to Bullinger after yes. that digression. He writes, uh, preaching on the Sixth Commandment. So then, truly, we should at no time defend tyrannical power and say that it is from God. For tyranny is not a divine, but a devilish kind of government. And tyrants themselves are properly the servants of the devil and not of God. So it's just very similar to the the, the arguments, but also almost the wording that they use in the Magdeburg Confession. They say, yes, he's the king, but when he's going and doing... Mm-hmm evil things god did not tell him to do that right that's all within god's sovereign control right but at a certain point you say no he's not doing what god says is right to do right so man so this obviously gets into a lot of different things especially with the sixth commandment um so the question then i believe would become or the one that i always come into run into with regards to this is well didn't god use wicked and evil regimes mm-hmm. in the Old Testament certainly to bring about judgment upon the people of God. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So how do we know? So why would it be right for us to resist that? Yeah. Um, I mean, you have, I mean, I'm thinking of Isaiah, um, I want to say it's Isaiah 45, um, but he's talking about that exact yeah. phenomenon where it's clearly laid out. I, I think it's the Assyrians. Like mm. these are... Um, That's right. God's instruments to inflict judgment mm. on the uh, the Israelites, right. um, the Hebrew people. But a few verses down, Isaiah is also proclaiming judgment against the Assyrians that's for right. the evil that they're doing. That's right. Yeah. Um, and you do. I mean, that's a that's a, a a thorny question to to try to think through. Right. No, and I think it is uh, as well. But you also have you know Calvin who said. Right when when God wishes to judge people, He gives them wicked mm-hmm. rulers. Um, I think that's absolutely true as right. well. Uh, nevertheless, I do believe that, as is called out in the London Baptist Confession, the sixth commandment is not just a a positive command, but there's also a negative mm. command mm-hmm. as well. Right? You shall right. not not only is it you shall not commit murder, you shall not kill, but is you shall do and work to preserve life. Right. And if there is a case where there is a tyrannical government that is commanding that life be taken you know there's 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 a duty there mm-hmm. obviously and this is the one place where i get stuck every time is is the matter of abortion mm. because um i don't i don't know that there's a, a, a right way of of fighting that mm-hmm. and trying to do defend it other than to just go out and proclaim the gospel and say hey this is wicked this is evil mm-hmm. and you got to stop yeah Definitely got to be a range of opinions. It would be different. It would be different if it was, you know, they were herding people up 
Right. Right. And like, hey, we're going to treat you like, you know, then you could actually go and you can say, hey, I'm going to fight against this. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, but it's it's a yeah. uh, much That's more thorny issue. Definitely. Uh, given the, the location of the victim. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. We got a second guy here and he doesn't move us very much further along in the timeline of history, but <laughs> John Pony. Yes. Is that P O N E T? Is it Pony or Pony? I think it's Pony. I think so too. And I base that on uh, some alternate spellings. Mo- well, Monet, there's that. When because when I first looked at it, I thought Ponet, uh, but then you look at how some other times he spelled his name. I think it's Pony. Yeah. Um, he lived from either 1514 or 1516 to 1556. Um, he was a bishop in the Church of England under Henry, Henry VIII and Edward VI. So remember, that's at the very time that England mm-hmm. is making the transition from Catholic to Protestant. Um, but when Queen Mary took the throne, he Bloody got out Mary. of Dodge. He he fled. He went to Strasbourg in France, which was kind of uh, one of the areas where a lot of English Protestants congregated mm-hmm. um, there and also in Geneva, like uh, John Knox did. Um, but writing in 1556, so the year of his death from Strasbourg, um, he write, writes a work that's entitled A Short Treatise on Political Power, or if you want the full title, as all good uh, 16th century reformed guys do, yeah. A Short Treatise on Political Power and of the True Obedience, which subjects owe to kings and other civil governors with an exhortation to all true and natural English men. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but again, continuing on the theme, he writes that, uh, the political power or authority being the ordinance and good gift of God. One thing, let me start over. <laughs> the political power or authority being the ordinance and good gift of God. One thing, and the person that executes the same, be he king or Caesar, another thing. So what he's saying is the power is the the authority itself is what got, is a good gift of God. And the right. person who executes that right. power are two different things. Yeah. Um, uh, he says the ordinance being godly the man may be evil and not of God nor come there by God princes committing their subjects that that is not godly not just not lawful or hurtful to their country ought not to be obeyed right so this this is actually uh, and I want to add this link in there too just because and I know you're not supposed to promote other podcasts right? <laughs> but this is this is one that I think has been very helpful with, if you're uh, getting paid then you don't but we don't yeah so. we don't get paid so it's no big deal uh, it's good to be a man by Michael Foster he mm. talks about how there's essentially uh, an inevitability of patriarchy which is essentially father rule which mm. is God ordained that Adam was instituted as the head of all mankind but also of the family and then readily later affirmed by Christ and through the writings of Paul and Peter. So you can't escape the fact that patriarchy will inevitably come. But so patriarchy is not bad, though the office or the person that holds mm. that office right. could be. Right. In which case you would have an evil form mm-hmm. or, or, you know, fleshing out of that patriarchy. And and you see that in abusive relationships, abusive right. men. And so, yeah, it would be it's right for those that are of the good patriarchy to call out and to mm-hmm. condemn those that are in the bad. And the same is true for this, right? Yeah. You should not obey. You should not uh, listen to or entertain people that are going to command evil, ungodly, mm-hmm. and unlawful things. Right. So jumping forward about uh, 100 years or so. Yeah, it's like 50, 50, 45 years, 1600. Okay. To oh, the, I guess. To the date of birth. Date of birth, uh, yeah, yeah, 1600. Um, so we're looking at Samuel Rutherford. He yeah. lived from 1600 to 1661. He was a Scotsman. 
In fact, he was one of the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, mm. from which we get the Westminster Confession of Faith and and uh, the Westminster Standards. Yeah. Um, he was an academic, so he was a professor of Latin, rector of St. Andrews, which is the oldest university of Scotland. And he would be in those academic positions until the restoration of the English monarchy. So remember, in that time period, the 16... Um, English Civil War was the 1640s, and then up until 1660, you had the Protectorate under Oliver Cromwell, and then his son, but then in 1660, Charles II comes back as monarch, and uh, that would lead to um, Samuel Rutherford's persecution. He was charged with treason, and basically the only reason he didn't get tried for that charge is because he died before they could catch up with him. Um, So he dies in 1661, but the work that he wrote for which he basically came under persecution is the one that he's probably best known for. And one of the orders was that his book be burned. Mm. But the name of that book was Lex Rex, which just means the law and the prince um, in Latin. The full title being, I don't know why I want to give you all these full titles. They're (laughs) kind of interesting though. It gives you an idea of what's in there when we're just giving you an overview. Uh, but the full title is The Law and the Prince, A Dispute for the Just Prerogative of King and People, Containing the Reasons and Causes of the Most Necessary Defensive Wars of the Kingdom of Scotland. Yeah. Okay. So, if you're, for those listeners who might be unfamiliar with the English Civil Wars, there was a separate war in Scotland um, that was basically fought by the Presbyterians against the king, who wanted to, part of one of the big issues. Um, and look up the Solemn League and Covenant if you want to know more, oh, yeah. was trying good. to impose on the Scottish church particular forms of worship. And they said, we're not doing that. Yeah. Um, so that led to a Again, war. though, that's usurpation, usurpation of the right. sphere of authority that's given directly to mm-hmm. the church and yeah. not to Caesar or government right. or civil authorities. So Samuel Rutherford is right in the midst of that. 1644 is when Lex Rex was published. Um, among the other things that he wrote, he wrote... That power which is contrary to law and is evil and tyrannical can tie none to subjection, but is a mere tyrannical power and unlawful. And if it tie not to subjection, it may lawfully be resisted. So he's not now quite may, saying, yeah, yeah. he says may. Um, you can do it if you wish, but you right. are not condemned if you do not. Right. Essentially. So that's, and the the Scots, they wanted to. That's, they, they that's wanted quite to. reserved for him, being a <laughs> Scotsman, seriously. Yeah. Um, he also says, but but while king and parliament do acts of tyranny against God's law and all good laws of men, they do not the things that appertain to their charge in the execution of their office. Therefore, by our confession, capital C, to resist them in tyrannical acts is not to resist the ordinance of God. Hmm. So I, I think part of what he's saying there, now he's writing this before the Westminster Confession. Right. But the, he's saying the confession of our church, the Scottish church, says we are to resist you. Yeah. And we're not going we're to use a, some some language that is quite familiar these days. You could still be a member in good standing. <laughs> if you want to go and fight, go right. fight. Yeah, yeah. Um uh, also but to to point out not it's not resisting the ordinance of God, right? So um goodness, I'm forgetting the name. Uh Pharisee uh Gamaliel. Gamaliel. Yeah. He said uh, leave them alone. Leave the disciples alone, because mm-hmm. you could be fighting against God. Right. So he's saying right here, essentially, like, look, you will not be fighting against God. This is not wrong of you to go mm-hmm. do. 
to resist these evil and wicked men. Because, and I think also I agree because you're preserving the sixth commandment. Mm-hmm. You're upholding the sixth commandment right. because, especially, I mean, now obviously that's a pretty clear case of of, of violence being done to people. Mm-hmm. Then you can say, okay, yes, right. There needs to be something done. Yeah. So but other places like, oh, you, you hate you, you know, you can't do this or you have to do that. Right. Uh, skipping ahead to the 18th century, you have a name that's familiar to all of our I've listeners. I've never heard of this guy in my life. Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> no, not that Jonathan Edwards. Um, this is Jonathan Edwards Jr. <laughs> or Jonathan Edwards the Younger. Ah. Um, so he lived from 1745 to 1801. He is the second son and the ninth child of the wow. famous preacher of the Great Awakening. Yeah. We had a long time for that second son. Yeah. Goodness. So We had to uh, keep trying, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> That's persistence. But he would follow his, in, somewhat in his, his father's footsteps. And I didn't notice this until now that the guy's name was the same. But there's uh, Bill Edwards. I didn't notice that the last name was the same. <laughs> but funny. Bill Edwards, he's a professor of history at Eastern Washington University. And I want to give him credit, cite my sources. Oh, yes. He, it's important. This is important. It's a very important thing to do. Yes. He writes of Jonathan Edwards, the younger... As a pastor, he had some of the same problems as his father in maintaining a contented congregation. Like his father, he upheld a strict standard for baptism, refusing to administer that sacrament to the children of parents who barely attended church. Mm -hmm. He opposed the halfway covenant and upheld a strict standard for full communion membership in the church. So, at least in some respects, yeah, kind of like... Baptists. Well, yeah, (laughs) except... Yes, they were a Congregationalist, so they yeah. do infant baptism. And without, I mean, so that's one theological difference we'd have with them. Without getting too deep into it, we'd differ with them probably on some some larger things, the freedom of the will and the proper view of the atonement. So he's not a penal substitutionary atonement guy, yeah. which is a problem. Um, but there's, as listeners are aware, I'm sure, um, a range of opinions there. He was dismissed from his church, Yikes. also like his father. And eventually he became the president of Union College in New York. But he happened to be in his prime right around the 1770s. Hey. Which, yes, is a big time for That's us when Americans. history began. <laughs> 19, or 1776. <laughs> yes, well, this is from one year before history began <laughs> in a sermon that he gave. Um, he preached as follows. Upon the whole, I think we may justly infer that the doctrines of passive, ob- passive obedience and non-resistance are not the doctrines of the Bible, and that non-resistance to the supreme powers is no more taught in scriptures than non-resistance to our fellow men, and even to thieves, robbers, and those who use the most abusive violence. The truth is, and the whole spirit of scripture sustains it, that rulers abound to rule in the fear of God and for the good of the people. And if they do not, then in resisting them, we are doing God service. Mm. So, doing especially, the work of God. Yeah. Especially timing at, you know, 1775. Um, And I didn't get the... Well, I've heard that too, that there was actually a real, like a big part of what led the American Revolution was Presbyterian ministers. Yes. Yes. George, George III referred to to it as the Presbyterian War. That's right. So um, that was Jonathan Edwards Jr. um, on resistance, or he says the the lack of support for passive obedience and non-resistance in the Bible. I like that. The non-resistance yeah. phrasing. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. Because I think a lot of folks, whenever you whenever you talk about this, they think... It, and I get it. It's and, it. and it's right to be a little bit cautious because you don't want to be the guy going and picking a fight. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, I don't agree with the statement, but it is true what our president has said. Mm. Right? It's the United States of America. You think you're going to go and pick a fight with the United States of America? And, you know, you're going to need a little bit more than just a rifle, right? And, and, and I would say that the fact that he believes that is a good thing. Yes. Because I'm sure Britain thought the exact same thing. <laughs> Nevertheless. Nevertheless. Uh, you don't want to be that guy going and right. picking a fight no. uh, with everybody. And as, a, as someone that we know and trust uh, and love has said, right, everybody thinks is every moment needs to be a Martin Luther mm. 99 Theses moment, mm-hmm. right? Or 90... 95. Five, sorry. Yeah. It's the four lost... I got Jay-Z in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 99 Theses, but... Transubstantiation ain't one. Transubstantiation definitely not one. Um, (laughs) All right. So then taking it forward to to the uh, 19th century, or a man who lived mostly in the 19th century. Mostly, yeah. It's a name that's probably familiar to many listeners is Charles Hodge. I don't know about that. Hopefully, 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 he's if familiar. it's if Charles Hodge is not a familiar name, listeners, please do yourself a favor, yes, and go and and read up on him and grab some of his books and look at Hodge them. That's great. Yes, so he lived from 1797 to 1878. He was born in Philadelphia. He graduated from Princeton and he became the seminary's first professor of Oriental and Biblical literature in 1822. Man, they're so uncouth using the word Oriental. I know. Well, you know, it was 1822. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was the second principal of the seminary. It was called a principal at the time, and they were the president. president. Um, he was preceded by another big name in Reformed mm-hmm. theology. Uh, Reformed theology. Can't say theology. Reformed theology. Archibald Alexander, who was the first president, and Hodge was followed by his son, A.A. A. Hodge, who was named for Archibald Alexander. And then the fourth principal was another a. big a. name. Ron. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not A.A. A. Ron. But another double. Yeah. The uh, great Mr. B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield. And I didn't even notice that, that A.A. A.A.B.B. A. B.B. So whoever was n- number five didn't do CC and continue no. <laughs> Um Hodge is prob. I mean, uh, if if listeners know of him, they likely know of him because of his systematic theology. Yep. Um, in three volumes, still being reprinted even in the 21st century. So it's definitely a seminal work for a lot of people. Um, but he writes, interestingly enough, in his commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, um, which was written in 1835. No command to do anything morally wrong can be binding, nor can any which transcends the rightful authority of the power whence it emanates. The right of deciding on all these points and determining where the obligation to obedience ceases and the duty of resistance begins must, from the nature of the case, rest with the subject and not with the ruler. Like we were saying before, that kind of brings this doctrine of the lesser magistrate right down to the lowest of the low magistrates um the self right the conscience yes the king doesn't get to be a judge in his own case right as to what's right and if there is a duty of resistance then obviously if i listen to the king then i'm just going to do what the king says but if i have a duty to do what's right even if the king says what's wrong then it just obviously at some point the individual has to decide, no, God says, here's what I believe God says to do, and my conscience says I must do this and disobey what 
the uh, ruling authorities are telling me to do because it would be sin. Right. So that brings up the obvious next question is, well, what if what they're telling me to do is not sin? Mm -hmm. I should just do it, right? Because if it's not sin, Mm -hmm. they don't, then I should submit. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's been a, a question that, you know, over the last 18 months, we've really had to grapple with more, yeah. more so than I think probably we ever did in our lives up to that point. Um, and I think that the sermon you referred to by Sam Waldron earlier was, was helpful on that point, and he breaks it down very well. But then I also think what, what gets looked over sometimes in those discussions is how are you determining what when, is sin? what is sin? Yeah. So if... Well, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not. The Bible doesn't say thou right. shalt. Therefore, this thing that they told me to do is right. not a sin. It's a matter right. so, of indifference. Uh, the the city of, of Suffolk, since you're a citizen of here, uh, currently residing. So the, the mayor has deemed that every resident of Suffolk must now wear a blue shirt on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm-hmm. And that if you don't, you'll be fined. Right. Well. I'm good. Get my blue shirt on tonight. Uh, uh, oh. Yeah, you do. It's Tuesday. Yep, so you're good. <laughs> but uh, would you be required to obey or may you resist? Yeah. I think that's one of the ones where you are not required to obey that. And yeah. the reason is what you what you talked about earlier is at that point, the mayor has stepped outside of their rightful sphere of authority. Right. Um, they're exercising their power in an First of all, an arbitrary way. Sure. It's like, what is the reason for that? Just because yeah. they felt like it. Um, you must wear a funny hat to go to the grocery store on Fridays. Like, I'm wearing a funny hat. <laughs> well, I mean, you could. I mean, I, right. I actually am wearing a hat right yes. now. But you could. There's a lot of plumage and bright right, colors. Right, right. You could. Yeah. <laughs> you could just say, uh, "Oh yeah, I'm wearing a hat," even though you're clearly not wearing one. Just like you can go and say, "I'm a, I'm a woman." Right. Yeah. Even though you're clearly not a woman. Yeah. So I think that women can have beards too. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, the blue shirt thing is, is a good example. It's like, can the mayor make pronouncements like that? And so let's take homeschooling. Yeah. Right. Well, see, I think that one is a much more easier case to determine, Mm -hmm. right? For me, homeschooling is no, it is my responsibility that God has given to me directly a command to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right. And I am not going to, outsource that responsibility that's mm-hmm. a responsibility given to me as the father of my kids and i need to obey it mm-hmm. so i'm gonna obey god and i'm not gonna obey the dictates of men right i don't care what their title or position is yeah and i think the thing that's and this is somewhat unique to the united states context yes is the other question you have to ask is what is the governing authority and I use, right i use that word what, what? intentionally because yeah. The ultimate authority in the United States is the written document in the United States it's Constitution. It's what every individual that holds office swears allegiance to and uphold. Right. Yes. So um, what's an, uh, uh, an example? The, the Constitution says you cannot pass an ex post facto law, which means you, may, you deem something to be a crime after the person did it. But that's that's strictly forbidden by the United States Constitution. Now, right. if Congress passes a law and the president signs it and the Supreme Court upholds it, they say, no, that's no, we don't care about that. We're we're doing this anyway. Well, then 
is the person who resists that law sinning or are all the government authorities, the people who are in positions of authority, sinning by violating what is actually the governing authority in the United States? No. No. Wait, hold on. <laughs> if, they, if, they, if they refuse and if they reject it? If they so if you refuse you would say if you're if you do not obey such a law that's clearly forbidden by the constitution then you're not sinning. Okay, hold on a second. One more, <laughs> one, more, one more time. Am I obeying a law that I disagree with that I believe is in violation of scriptural commands to me? If you okay, we'll do both. If you obey, are you sinning by doing that? I it would depend on the law. Okay. So it would depend on, to me, it would depend on the sphere, sphere of authority, mm -hmm. right? And that gets a little, like, we can talk about vehicles, for example. Mm -hmm. I disagree with it completely. <laughs> I don't think I should be required to wear my seatbelt. I do. Right. Because I don't want to get a ticket, but right. I also do because it does help, you know, it, it can help me in an yeah. instance, and it has Absolutely. helped me in an instance where I've been in a wreck. Yeah. Um, from, <laughs> from getting bounced out of the driver's seat. Yeah. Because that's happened to me before. <laughs> I didn't used to wear my seatbelt. Yikes. Um, but uh, I don't think it should be a law. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's right for the government to make that a law. Right. I don't think it's right for a government to make it a law that I have to um, ask permission to carry a means of self-defense, mm -hmm. regardless of whatever that self-defense may be. Right. It could be a machete in my back, you know, just pull out... Whatever. Yeah. Put that put that thing away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's that's the one that, that the issue of is this person who's in a position of authority acting within the scope of the authority that they actually have is right. is really just a key, a key question. And especially for for Americans because we you know, in our system of government there are, you know, carefully defined spheres of authority. Yeah. And people in those positions should not step outside of them. But not only that, I mean, we, we can see very clearly now the importance, or well, I don't want to say we we can, as in collectively the entire United States, but it has been made very clear to a lot of people that the Second Amendment or the right of the people to keep and bear arms not being infringed, as it has been in Australia, places mm -hmm. like Australia, mm -hmm. are very important when you have people being arrested and hunted mm -hmm. for not, uh, you know, reporting to the government quickly right. enough. Yeah. But there was another question I wanted to ask you. Let's say, for gr grins and giggles, giggles, grins and giggles, <laughs> uh, let's say that a foreign country, which will remain nameless. Take your pick. Fill yeah. in the blank. Yeah, sure. But anyhow, so imagine a country that has been buying land and property in other parts of the world. Hypothetically. <laughs> Hypothetically. <laughs> who also simultaneously controls the distribution of and uh, could greatly interfere with the supply chain of mm. the entire United States. Decided they wanted to, like, you know, board a few boats, come across, mm -hmm. and actually launch... Uh, full-scale takeover right. of the United States. Um, or, and at that time, the United States com completely disassembles. Mm -hmm. It falls. There's, it's, hey, everybody, you're on your own. 
the, the federal government has collapsed. Uh, there's invading invaders coming on all sides. What is the right thing to do? Yeah. Like, okay, hey, is it we need to, as men, go enlist and go fight the enemy where they are? Or do we say, hey, this is an act of judgment from God mm-hmm. on this country, and we're going to go hide up in the hills? You mean like Wolverines? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's I, a relevant question these days right. because there's so much going on in the world right now and so much volatility within our federal government. I don't know that... Uh, I think I think that's a really interesting question because mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, that's, because our view gets distorted being in America, we have a lot of freedoms that other right. countries don't, and other places don't. For sure. So we can say so we can have these different things, but it's like, okay, what about a Christian that's somewhere like in the Middle East, mm-hmm. somewhere in Africa, uh, where a warring tribe comes in and just says, "Hey, we're in charge now. Like, look yeah. at me. I'm the right. captain. I'm the captain now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what, well, do, what do you do? Yeah. Huh? That's. I mean, that's very difficult. And um, I mean, Somalia is probably. A, a good example, actually, because they are much decried for, well, that's... Piracy. Why don't you move to Somalia? That's, you know, what people throw at you on, on the internet is yeah. if you question anything that our government does. is Well, you should just go live in Somalia because, you know, they don't have a government. Right. Supposedly. Well, first of all, that's false. Yeah. They have, How does the country exist if there's no government? Right. They have lots... There's together, there's there are government. lots of lesser magistrates that yeah. never went anywhere in that yeah. country apart from the you know the fighting the warlords um it was it's a tribal society so those um structures and communities never went away and actually you know in, in certain aspects thrived more than they ever had either under the communist um government or under the warlord system so yeah, that's difficult. And, and I mean, I think if you're a Christian in that context, you say, well, this um, sphere of the authority didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So I'm I'm still accountable to them as the next step up. Right. And what's happening up here, maybe we have to see how that settles out before. Because right. you have to deal with all the fact, all the, you know, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. All, all these other cases in the Old Testament that we have where we can look at and say, okay, here's a case where the people of God were completely overtaken and ruled by pagans. Yeah. I mean, I think we're ruled by pagans now, but <laughs> in a much more extreme sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, here's another question for you. The most recent, as far as I know, uh, National Defense Authorization Act, mm-hmm. which was filed in Congress, is or submitted to Congress, uh, is seeking to conscript women mm. by the draft. Right. Making it mandatory by law that every female over the age of 18 should put her name in the draft. Right. Would it be right for a Christian woman to refuse? Oh, man. And say, you know, may she may she resist that yeah. law. Yeah. That is, uh, I mean... And as a father, if your daughter chose to... Right. What would you do? Yeah, that is, I mean, that's, that's a really tough one. And it's, um, I don't know whether that's passed yet. Has it I, don't, passed? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, but that's one of those ones that is, I mean, will get very real very soon. Um, because there are criminal penalties for failing to register for selective Some services. Some pretty serious ones. Yeah. Serious ones. I mean, that's why people, um, and during Vietnam fled to Canada. Because it was either I can go fight 
or I can sit in jail, or I can run away. Or you could be like the kid from Hacksaw Ridge. Desmond episode, Doss. Desmond Doss. Desmond Doss. We've got to do an episode on SDA. That that we do, yes. But Just that's... that one in. I mean, as a father of girls, yeah, that's a very real thing to me. I was very upset. I, I told him, oh, I said, yeah. if it was a requirement that I had to, as a father, go do it, it would be very clear, very easy. No. Mm-hmm. That's a hill I'm willing to die on. Right. Um, but second, if, if my daughter so chose to not... Mm-hmm. I would, I would, I would hide her mm-hmm. and I would do everything necessary to protect her from the law and from any kind of criminal um, prosecution. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully Congress will come to their senses on that one. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, that's a big if. Um, we'll Actually, see. Yeah, never mind. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> We've said enough on that probably. Yeah, I don't want to say any more on that. Yeah. I was, well, never mind. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, what else? What are the questions can we ask about that? I, mean, I think obviously the one of the most liberal states just lost a court case to a church in California. Mm-hmm. Right? So that was, that's promising. That's right. good. But we have some local lesser magistrates here locally that are pushing back against this governor mandated law. Mm-hmm. They're saying, no, we're not going to do that in our school systems. Right. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And also a right for them to do mm-hmm. because that is asinine. It is absolute right. absurdity um, to allow young boys and young girls to share locker rooms just because I'm a girl. Right. You're not. Yeah. So that's, that's a, yeah, those, that, those are good examples. And you see um, some of that popping up or, uh, oh, and I'm not going to remember her name now. That might be a more controversial case. Is the the clerk in Kentucky? Yeah, whose she name refused. I can't, remember. I can't remember her name either, but she refused to to sign the the marriage certificate. Right. She was like, yeah, nope. yeah. And there was a pretty sharp divide of opinion on that. Where she some, was right to do so. Right, where there were people who said, "Yeah, she absolutely she was right to do so because this is uh, this is wrong and she yeah. shouldn't participate in it." But then there were people kind of on the other side well, saying, but "Well, this is her job. She works for the. This is her job. It's just a. It's a. It's a." It's a routine function. She's not participating nah, in the yeah. And I'm more sympathetic to the what you said. But um, so, but so, see, this is this is this is the the concept and idea of separation of church and state is so completely just misunderstood. Right. People don't have any idea of what it means, and uh, and in in that particular case, it showed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think I've said about all I have to say on that. I got a lot more I could say. But I don't want to. Some wanna, things are better left unsaid. I don't want to be. I don't want to be arrested yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Or but they yeah. may come, but yeah, not today. Not today. We are speaking of coming episodes. Yes. Uh, at the end of end of this month, first weekend in October, we will be at the G three conference in Atlanta, and our plan is to do another. Uh, man on the street interview church history quiz with some questions provided by our friends at Revived, Revived Studios. Studios. You should go and check them out. Yes, definitely do because they do a wonderful job of research, delivery, and 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 everything that they do with the reviving sermons from past uh, pastors, theologians. It's just a wonderful work. So definitely give them a check. Uh, yes. I look up. So we will be there at G3. Um, come and we'll, we'll figure out some way to 
identify ourselves. <laughs> um, but if you if you see, we gotta get shirts. We'll get shirts. Get some shirts. If you see a six foot tall Mexican and a big guy with a big beard coming yeah. towards you with a microphone, that's probably us. Yeah. We, I mean, we check, double check to make sure yeah. it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to catch. I want to get. I want to see if we can get some of the some of the speakers. That would be cool. Yeah, because uh, I had uh, Chocolate Knox cornered at Founders, <laughs> and he ran away. <laughs> he didn't really run away, but he definitely he dipped out real quick. <laughs> so, but we'll, we'll see who else is willing. But he knew. He's like, oh no. He's like, I'm not. I'm not a church historian. That's not gonna go well. So <laughs> he bounced out. Uh, but oh, yeah, citing our sources. I almost forgot. Um, so one of the the reasons that that the um, this, this episode became uh, an episode idea was a lot of these quotes were compiled um, by Gregory Baus, and you can find his podcast at Honest to Pod, where he talks about a lot. You know, some of these same things. Um, he's got some episodes dating back to last May, where he starts off by talking about Romans 13 and stateless civil governance. Um, but, but he did a lot of the legwork on compiling these sources into a bibliography, so definitely wanted to make sure that he gets credit for getting us started on this. Thank you, Dr. Litton. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um... Well, all right. that That's it for this time. Uh, we'll be back hopefully after not quite as much of a break this time. Yeah, um, but depends on if the revolution starts and <laughs> if the United States falls. But not, anyway, not to be too dramatic. No, I think I'm praying for the Lord's return. Actually, yes, there you go. Yeah, but no, thank you guys for listening. And again, if there are any other questions, further questions, please do ask your pastor. He is the one who is the caretaker of your souls, and. Uh, He's been given responsibility. That's his sphere of authority. We do not intend to step over that at all. So Amen. study it on your own. Do some research. And I hope in some way this has been helpful. All right. Till next time. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> I mean, I, I did work with a guy who used to tell me, like, he knew I was Mexican. I'm like, I'm Mexican. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, there's, a, there's an invasion on the southern border. It's like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay that's an opinion to have <laughs> he meant that like the Mexican-American Mex- war right well, yeah yeah of course <laughs> James K. Polk well I mean the only reason that Texas even joined the union was because they needed help securing their southern border true and look at what's not happening <laughs> secede Texas secede um, it's not like the Seinfeld he was a close talker no no although I did find out I went to get an eye exam today and my eye doc previous eye doctor was a close talker oh. <laughs> but more more creepier was he was also a person who never blinked oh, and that a is, close talker that is disconcerting yeah <laughs> it was very creepy and so i found out today that he his contract was not renewed because too many people thought he was creepy <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> it's terrible oh my but goodness i'm glad i wasn't the only one that thought it so <laughs>